This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hey, alrighty, welcome everyone. Thank you all for uh, for for joining us. Thank you for all for join, joining in the uh, on the Zoom. Um, I see the message regarding the the. It might be a little bit choppy. Just you know, bear with me. It should. Um, I I do have full uh, full bars, uh, but if there is continued issues, please do uh, message me over there. Okay, so now we're getting into the the Kabayasha. Really, so so the title uh, was sent out as an introduction to the Kabayasha, uh, but really, I think the correct title or in the, in addition should be an introduction to uh, to Kabbalah uh, because uh, the Kabayasha. Is a very, very Kabbalistic safer. And, um, I want to explain it clearly to the best of, uh, of my abilities. And that being said, there is a lot of Kabbalistic aspects. So we do have to discuss a little bit about Kabbalah as well. But before we get to that, um, I first, um, have to explain how I came to, uh, learn the Kabbalah. So it's, it's been, uh, many, many years ago, um, where I first heard the Kavayasha was actually from Rabbi Zechariah Wallerstein. Uh, that's who I heard about, uh, the Kavayasha. After I heard him, um, speak about it, I went out, I bought it, and I don't know what to tell you. I don't remember a safer that I ever had such a page turner. Like, I'm like, okay, one more parak. Uh, okay, let me do just, just one more. It was something that just, it, it just blew me out of the water. Um, uh, and it, it's something that's really, really like a, a massive, massive page turner. So that being said, um, obviously, uh, you know, the series should be Le'ili Nishmas, Rab Zechariah Walsh, and Zechariah Shem Ben Yitzchak Akon, as well as Le'ili Nishmas of Rab Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yecheskel Ben Rab Avram. Um, and the the beauty of the of the safer is is first of all the the it's so accessible it's so like it's so i can't say it's easy to understand because it's very heavy concepts but it, there is something and we'll soon explain why and how there's something that just it makes learning kabbalah it makes learning musr very 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 accessible um, uh, of course, enjoyable, but learning any Torah is enjoyable, but this is, this is something on, on a different level, and this is just me, uh, me personally. Now, uh, the, the, the Sefer is mixed with Musr and, and Kabbalah, and I, I strongly recommend, even though we're gonna, Bezat Hashem, go through this series, I strongly recommend everybody to read it inside. Um, there is a bunch of different versions out, there is a, um, there's an English version, I believe it's out of print now, uh, there is a Hebrew, uh, version, uh, which I would recommend that has actually a little bit of a, um, a uh, little bit of an extra uh, beer in in it. I don't know if you guys can see it. This is. I would also recommend. There's two val- There's two different types of uh, of this as well. There's two different versions of this as well uh, with the Kavnaki and Uh But in any case, I think it's a very very important uh, safer to learn. I also want to emphasize that. The way that we're going to be I'm going to be uh, learning it is not the way that most people learn it. So how do you, how do you learn on safer? It's very simple. You go inside, you open it. I read the Hebrew, and then I translate it into English, give a little bit of an explanation, and that is the way that you generally learn You learn a Sefer. We are not going to do it that way. We're going to be doing it, uh, you know, a little bit different. There are there are Baruch Hashem quite a few uh, places that you could listen to those type of classes online. Uh, a recommendation is one of Rabbi Zachary Wallace's students, Rabbi Moshe Rudish, actually has a series on it that he started um, right after Rabbi Zachary was Nifter. So uh, you can find it on Torah anytime. I, you know, if, I would struggle recommend uh, to listen to that in conjunction with this or you know like like or or at least learn it inside because that he goes through it um he goes through the the actual uh the actual text on this so what are we going to do differently so the way that i would like to do it is i would like to take it's going to be a series that it's going to be based off the kabayasha meaning that we're going to go through the prakim we might skip things we might we're definitely going to go really deep on certain uh you know certain topics uh just to explain it and and to bring out different uh different points of it so we are not going to actually go you know in the text inside and and reading it but we're going to be quoting it extensively obviously because this is going to be based off it and we're going to be branching 
branching off a bunch of different uh, topics. And that is why I strongly recommend to actually go inside because what I am going to do is not going to do any justice to how the Kava Yashar, he, how he wrote it and how it came out and how it, uh, you know, is presented. I, I strongly recommend it. I think it's something that you have to do both, uh, you know, together. You can listen to the class, but you also have to go and, uh, and learn it inside as well. So being that this is a very, very heavy on, on Kabbalah, I would like to, um, and thank you, Rav Kashi posted, I'm assuming, I didn't, I didn't click the link, but I see in the chat, I'm assuming that's the link for uh, Rabbi Rudish's uh, series, but um, because, thank you, uh, because this is a very, very uh, heavy uh, um, series on Kabbalah, um, I was prepared a whole different class uh, share for tonight, and then I was like, you know what, there's a lot of Kabbalistic comps, so maybe I should give an introduction in Kabbalah. So I decided that I have to give a little bit of introduction in, in you know, what Kabbalah is and how do we understand the different uh, topics, uh, different different ideas that, uh, for some of you, it may be foreign, you may not understand it, and it's fine, you don't have to understand everything, but it's important to understand certain, uh, certain concepts. But before we get to that, we have to understand why people love Kabbalah. There's a craze of Kabbalah Kabbalah. It's not just now. It's been going on for many, many years. People are obsessed with Kabbalah. There's a lot of uh, um, fraudsters that are out there that are claiming that they're teaching Kabbalahs in different, uh, you know, different uh, ways. Uh, this is uh, many of them are are fake, are false, and, and you should run very, very far away from them. But people are obsessed with Kabbalah. People love Kabbalah. So why is it that people are obsessed with Kabbalah? So you could say, well, you know, you know, people like the hidden. What's Kabbalah? Kabbalah is the secrets, the hidden, the, the hidden parts of the Torah. Uh, or you could say that it's maybe associated with the powers that are uh, related to uh, Kabbalah or maybe the spooky things uh, that Kabbalistic ideas speak about. But I really think one of the underlying thing for many people, not everybody, for many people, why they, they, they venture into the Kabbalistic world is because it gives us an understanding of the world, of the, the Torah, of relationships, things that we could never, you know, like gives us layers and depth to something that we never had access to and we never even realized to. And that just brings a lot of clarity into the field once you see the, the depths of what, um, of what all these topics go to. And, uh, you know, just to be honest, this is why, um, uh, this is why I'm going to switch to a different, uh, uh, bandwidth. I'm sorry, guys, if it's not clear. But this is why that, uh, uh, you have, oh, I'll give you actually an, an honest of where I, when I delved into this is, uh, I had, uh, many years ago, I had a Harusa that was, um, he was Nifter at a very, very young, uh, a very young age. And um, his name was Moshe Yehuda Berkowitz. And after he was Nifter, uh, he was at the age of uh, 25. I was 25 at the time. Also, we were Kavrusas for, was it nine years? I want to say it's about nine years uh, that, that we were Kavrusas. We were a little bit on and off, but we were very, very close. He was my Shomer. I guess you could call the best man at my at my wedding if you want to go for the more modern. But um, he, uh, when he was Nifter, I had a lot of questions. And it wasn't a questions of, you know, why he was Nifter. My questions really was what happens now? What happens next? Uh, what happens to his neshama? What goes on? And that's when I started delving into a little bit of the Kabbalistic concepts. And, uh, this is where you start learning everything from what happens after neshama leaves from Kibbutz Kever to Triasa Mason and everything in between and what happens in the other worlds. And this is what drew me, uh, into it at, uh, you know, at the time. But the, Truth of the matter is, is that uh, when people learn uh, Kabbalah, you really should be uh, learning it after you finish Shas, after you, uh, you know, finish, uh, you know, all of the Tanakh, you know, after you finish the bulk of the Torah, that's when you get into, uh, into the Tanakh. Going into learning Kabbalah before you even understand the, fa- the, the foundations is wrong, it's incorrect, and it's going to come to very, very problematic and error, you're going to come to radical errors, and it's not going to be, it's not going to be good. Uh, but you still have people that are very, very, you know, they're, they're drawn to it. So that's why a lot of the classes that we speak about, especially in the early classes, were not Kabbalah classes, but they were Kabbalistic concepts. And that's what I want to, I would like to delve on in through going through the Sefer as as well. Uh, the, the Unfortunately, because of the craze of the, no, I shouldn't say the craze, because of the, the, the draw towards Kabbalah in the, in, the, in the past, you know, I don't know, maybe 30, 40, 50 years, 
there were people that came out and they claimed to be miracle workers. They claimed to be uh, people that can uh, do nisim in the flies, can do miracles, they can tell the future, and they can do a bunch of different uh, different things. And they use these tactics, unfortunately, to trick people. And uh, they would they would uh, claim that they know how to do practical Kabbalah, uh, different types of mystical oaths. They would be able to do some things that you know came out. They actually were able to do it, but it came out from a very very bad and evil uh, side. So Rabbi Yaakov Hillel. And Eretz Yisrael, he came out with a safer called Tamim Tiyah. Tamim Tiyah is a safer to go and try to uh, pull people away from things of this fraudulent, uh, Kabbalistic, uh, you know, activity. So I want to quote a little bit, a few things from his safer Tamim uh, Tamim Tiyah. So to to understand what we're getting into, we have to understand um, uh, what Kabbalah what Kabbalah is. So we know that the Torah was given to uh, Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai. Now. The Torah, when the Torah was given, the Torah was given at Tarsh Beksav and Tarsh Bapel. So that's the written Torah and the oral Torah. The oral Torah, there are four levels uh, to it. And this is the acronym Pardes. Pshat, Remesh, Remez, Drush, and Said. So Pshat is the simple meaning, simple interpretation of the Psukim. Then you have the remes. The remes is like the deeper meaning. This is something that is hinted. You could either do it through gematrias. The gematrias are numerical, uh, numerical values, acronyms. Uh, that's under the classification of remes. Then you have drash, drash, and that is something that is like the agadata gemaras uh, that we learn of the agadatas midrashim, uh, different things like that. That comes from from the drush. And finally, the final thing is sight, and sight is kabbalah. That's the kabbalistic interpretation. So what is kabbalah? What is the, the aspect? So what, so it's easy way to understand is Kabbalah is the secrets. But what, what does that mean? What is that actually, what is the, the Kabbalah the actually the, the study of? So Kabbalah is the study of Ruach HaKadosh, which is divine inspiration and prophecy, Nevuah. The, the, actually it's one. I mean, let me list a bunch of things. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, a study of Ruach HaKadosh and Nevuah. It's a study of ways of approaching HaKadosh Baruch Hu and connecting to, connecting to God. And to see also how God reacts through, to, to this world through his attributes of Chesedid and, uh, Rachamim. Also, how the human beings, like what everything we do over here, how it perfects the worlds that by performing the mitzvahs, and unfortunately vice versa, it could also be, uh, through harming the worlds through, uh, uh, you know, th- through Averis. The the Kabbalistic ideas teaches teaches us that there are we know that there are 613 mitzvahs. The 613 mitzvahs these corresponds to the 613 there are limbs and sinews in English uh, in a man's body. The, this is not only in the physical body but also also in the spiritual body. So the spiritual body is known as the soul. There's just like there's 613 uh, let's call it divisions of the of the body. There's also 613 divisions in the in the soul. And besides that, besides the body, body and the soul, there's also 613 divisions in the upper worlds. So when you have all these divisions, everything needs to be rectified, everything needs to be perfected. And that's what we have, the 613 mitzvot that we have, and that's what that gives us the ability to rectify it and unfortunately, you know, go the other way as as well. We're going to get a little bit capitalistic, so bear with me. Whatever you understand, good. We're, we're going to be jumping from different, you know, ideas. So just just bear with me. So every, every, every nishama, every soul has a root in the, in the upper world. When a person does an Avera, they blemish that root in the upper world, uh, and they blemish the, of the part of their body that this, this uh, sin corresponds to. Tshuva and Tikkun, which is the, the Kabbalistic rectifications, that rectifies the blemish. So you have a sin that can either blemish the aspect of the body and the soul in the next world, or you have the ability to do a mitzvah which perfects the body, the soul in the next world, and, uh, and, and, you know, and the next world. So, the revealed part of the Torah, the regular part of the Torah, this is for everyone. The, secret part of the Torah that deals in all this foundational aspect, that is only for a select few. It's not meant for everybody to learn. The the Pasuk in uh, Tehillim, chapter 25, verse 14, tells us, Said Hashem The secrets of Hashem are only for those who fear Him. Meaning it's not meant for everybody to go and learn Kabbalah. You have these Kabbalistic centers that they go and they start teaching Kabbalah to anybody and anybody walks in. First of all, not only do they not know what they're talking about, they not know the actual aspect of Kabbalah, but also people have to be on a certain, uh, a certain level. 
says the Sefer HaPliya, that not everybody should learn it, because, and, and especially, it goes on especially, if it's studied for the purpose of practical Kabbalah, which is something that we're going to, uh, you know, speak about. The Gemara in Chagiga t- tells us about this, this danger of delving into Kabbalistic ideas, especially practical Kabbalah. The Gemara in Chagiga, page 14b, tells us that four people entered the Pardes. Arba Nichnesu Bapardes. Four people entered the Pardes. They entered into the, into the spiritual realm. They entered into the next world. The four people were Ben Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Ben Acher, and Akiva. Ben Zama, Ben I'm sorry, Ben Azai, he entered and he died. Ben Zoma entered and he went crazy. Acher entered and became a heretic. Rabbi Kiva entered and he left without any uh, without any issues. Just shows us the danger of 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 delving into this kabbalistic especially practical uh, kabbalah which will soon explain the difference between practical and theoretical kabbalah so kabbalah has two main branches and you probably if anybody learned any uh, kabbalah uh, or listened to any classic kabbalah you'll hear these two phrases mentioned but you probably i uh, didn't know exactly what this meant so we'll explain what this means and and the two main branches of kabbalah there's something called maasei beratius this is the creation or Maase Merkava, this is the divine chariot. These are the two main branches of Kabbalah. So Maase Bereshis describes the upper and lower worlds. It explains how they were created, um, how they are directed, how can they be corrected, uh, what can be brought through their their, their perfection. It also uh, speaks about HaKadosh Baruch Hu's unity, God's unity, and uh, as well as the secrets of the Torah and the halachos that the Torah uh, requires of us. That's Maise Beratius. Then there's something called Maise Merkava. Maise Merkava teaches us the different ways that a person can sanctify and elevate himself to, to get to the level of nevuah, of prophetic vision. And these are different methods through tefillah, prayer, performing mitzvot, but not just performing the, the good deeds, but performing them with special intentions, with each, which these are called kavanot. Uh, purifying the body, rectifying the root of the soul, and so on and so forth. So that is the two different aspects of um, of Kabbalah. There are also a Kabbalistic ideas that, that are very, very common, and this is known as the four worlds. The four worlds, these are really like four uh, four levels. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created four spiritual worlds. Uh, to sort of, it conceals his light until it enters our material world. The names of these four worlds are Atzilut. Atzilut is like the nearness. Then there's Bria, which is the creation. Then there is Yitzira, which is formation, and then there's finally Asiya, which is the action, which is the lowest level, and this is our material world. So again, these are four concepts that are very, very commonly thrown around in Kabbalah. Uh, good to understand and know at least the basic of it. Atzilut, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya. These four levels, there are four levels of divine inspiration, Ruach HaKodesh, that are, that are rooted in each of these four worlds. So prophecy, this stems from the highest world of Atzilut. The prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu was re- revealed to him in the level of Berea of creation. Uh, the earlier prophets were also was, was in Berea, but lower down. The later prophets were in the in the world lower, which is Yitzira, and now. And, and even in the time of Tanaim, the time, the, the, the Gemara that we mentioned, we had the four Tanaim, the, the Tanaim is the time of the people in the Mishnah, uh, the Gemara in Chagiga that tells us the four, the four Tanaim that entered the, the Pardes, this stems from the, from Yetzira. That's from the world of Yetzira. So they were, as the time goes on, the access to the worlds were, were not so accessible and it kept on going down as the generations went further and further away from, uh, Matan Torah, from the giving of of the Torah. In the later generations, the only inspiration, the only, the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the only divine inspiration attainable was that in the world of Asiya. And this is why when you hear the term of practical Kabbalah, it's called Kabbalah Mas'it. That's from the Kabbalah of the world of Asiya, of doing, and that's the final, uh, the final, uh, the final world, which, which is what we correspond to, meaning the lowest, the lowest of the worlds. So the practical Kabbalah, what is practical Kabbalah? You hear this term being thrown around a lot. This is the study of the forces over the lowest world, which is Asiya, which is our, which is our world. So what does that mean? What is a practical that means a person who achieves a very, very high spiritual level may, again, under conditions, use practi- what happens when they use practical Kabbalah, they could direct the for- forces of nature and they can make, they could 
do like do tremendous amount of stuff like miracles and hashem gave the god gave this power to the righteous to do as well and we'll soon see uh what was this was and and what this is allowed to do for so that is uh the the uh, the practical uh kabbalah now kabbalah as people think that it's something that it's new, it, this is not something that's new at all. This was given to us directly. Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave it to Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai. The only difference was is is that this wasn't passed on to everybody like the rest of the Torah. This was only given to a select few, and this went on for generations to generations. There were certain times, periods in our history that there was a period of what is called the like divine mercy, divine Chesed, that there were mysteries that were revealed. So one of the more famous ones is the time of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and this is uh, where where he was. He put the he put a lot of the Kabbalistic ideas, the Kabbalistic you know concepts and understandings into what is known as the Zohar. And throughout history, there were times when this was not available, and this became little you know available you know later on. But uh, there was another point in time where there was uh, uh, again a revelation uh, of this divine chesed, divine mercy. That there was a revelation of the secrets of the Torah, and that was during the time of the Ari. In the 16th century, uh, Rav Yitzhak Luria, otherwise known as the Arizal. And what the, the, uh, what the Arizal learned, um, he ended up teaching, and a lot of it is through based through, uh, you know, from Elio Hanavi. He, uh, transmitted this knowledge to his, uh, disciple, to his student, uh, which his famous, most famous student is none other than Rav Chaim Vital. And who wrote it, who Rav Chaim Vital wrote it in what's called something called, the safer called Eitz Chaim. So this is the Kabbalistic tradition that was revealed uh, by Reb Chaim Vital, and this was based off the, uh, you know, the Harizal. Now, the four worlds, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created these four worlds to conceal his light, and, and it came to our world in stages. Again, a lot of concepts, again, I'm going on with you guys, just bear with me, whatever you do understand, whatever you don't understand, it's fine, you know, just, you'll, you'll, you'll pick up here and there. So, the, the lowest, the, the, the lowest world, which is our world, which is the world of um, Asiya, HaKadosh Baruch Hu uses messengers. So meaning from the highest world of Atzilut, HaKadosh Baruch Hu directs everything. As the worlds go down, and the land, especially the last world of, of Asiya, he uses a messenger. So these messengers are either through angels or what it's called as of constellation, Mazalot. The angels are spiritual let's call them intermediaries, that their origin, their source, is either in the worlds of Bria, Yetzira, or the higher parts of Asiya. These are the, the, the worlds of the, of the angel, depending of where and what the purpose of the angel is. And the constellation, this is uh, created from the lower parts of Asiya. Now, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created, God created these intermediaries to exert certain influences on the earthly beings, depending on their maximum, depending on their actions, depending on their deeds. However, because everything that God does, God has to make it that there is free will for human beings. So just like HaKadosh created all this spiritual power, and this is all coming from the stem of good, HaKadosh also had to create this power in the in the aspect of evil. And that's in order to preserve a, the, a man's freedom, to choose between good and evil. So the, there's worlds of purity and there's worlds of impurity corresponding to the holy worlds, you know, as well. So these these worlds of impurity also have the ability to influence earthly uh, uh, beings. Of course, even regardless of where these origins of these worlds are, whether it's 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 uh, comes from a stem of kedusha or tuma or, or a place of impurity, Hakadosh Baruch Hu rules over everything and everything and anything. So the way one of the ways that there is you're able to influence these worlds is through something that is known as the divine names um the gemara in kedushan page 71a tells us that at first there's many names of akadish baruch and these are very very powerful names and these are names that that can change uh nature can change reality these, these this is the, the the way that you're able to manipulate different things in nature so the gemara tells us that at first the twelve-letter name uh, was of Hakadosh Baruch Hu was taught to everyone, but when many people began to use it, they didn't start teaching it to everybody. They only taught us taught it to modest people. 
And then the, you know, the Gemara speaks about the 42 letter name that was only told, also told to the Tanamadis, meaning that there was an aspect that there was letters, there was names of Akadish Baruch, names of God that was taught to uh, to two people and the this these divine names these are tools so to speak that through Kabbalistic secrets they have power over creation and this is how people were able to perform miracles through using these divine uh, these divine names again these names were revealed by God by Kadosh Baruch to Moshe Rabbeinu and this was you know uh, transmitted to other to other to other prophets and it was handed down to the Tanaim to the Amoraim to the t- people in the times of the Gemara and and the and the Mishnah and the people that worked hard to refine their character and uh, to, to reach a very high level were able to use to, to use these names to sort of clothe their souls and sort of get up into the next tap into the next world with through their neshama um, uh, and uh they had the power to control certain forces. They had the power to perform miracles. They had the power to overcome, over, over, override nature, so to speak. However, these sages that had this power, that had this ability, that had this knowledge, they did not use it for the personal benefit, even to save their lives. And we see Eliyahu Hanavi. He was lost in the desert for 40 days, and he never used uh, any of the names, Shemus HaKadoshim, the names of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yirmiyahu was also cast into a pit, and he never never invoked any names to save himself. Yeshayo, however, it's interesting that he used his name for his own benefit and he ended up falling into the hands of the of the enemies and he ended up dying. What happened was, this is the story that the Gemara in Yevamos, page 49b, brings down that Menasha, the king, uh, was was uh, speaking to the prophet Yeshayahu and he said, you know, your words contradict the words of Moshe Rabbeinu and therefore I sentence you for death. So Yeshayahu said to himself, listen, if I speak in my own defense, so Menasha, the king, he's not going to accept my, my, you know, my answer. He is going to go and he's going to execute me anyways. So then heaven, the, you know, Shemaim in heaven, they're going to judge him for murder. So maybe I shouldn't say anything. And, but if I don't speak, then they're, then they're going to judge him for an error in his judgment because he was wrong in his judgment. So what Yeshayo decided to do is going to, he's going to announce one of the, he's going to use one of Hashem's name. And what happened was he used Hashem's name and he was absorbed into a tree. Meaning he completely like became one of the tree. And Menashe saw that and he went and he decided that he's going to go and chop down that tree. And when they started chopping down the tree, the axe went into the place of where the mouth of Yeshayahu was and he died. So here we see that people that used the names of Akadish Baruch Hu for the, even for their, you know, for their, to save themselves, it did not end, uh, it did not end well. The Sefer HaPliya, um, says that there is very, very limited circumstances when you are allowed to use these names. And the circumstances that the Sefer HaPliya brings is either to, uh, to, to avoid a danger to the Jewish people or to be Mekadesh and Shemaim, to sanctify the name of, of God. But even before using this name, a person has to rid themselves of impurity. Um, and one of the ways that they need to do that is, uh, they have to rid themselves of impurity of contact, of the contact with the dead. And that's through the Para Aduma, the red heifer. Um, which obviously we don't have nowadays. And you have to be fasting, you have to be secluded. Some say they have to be with somebody else in order to bring you back. We're not going to get into all that details. But there's a lot of uh, prerequisites that need to happen before utilizing Hakadish Bar- the, these powerful, powerful names. The Arizal said that, oh, you know, which person should use uh, these holy names? Only someone that is so sinless and so does not have any sins that even the angel of death is considered his friend. The Sefer HaRikarim says that if somebody does learn these names and somebody goes and utilizes these names and that what will be their end is that they will fall into the hands of their enemies, they will die young and they will forfeit, uh, you know, their share in the world to come. Meaning, do not try this at home. Uh, and uh, the proof is, you see where Belshazzar, he went and he used the kalim, the vessels of the Beit HaMikdash, of the temple, and this is not even utilizing Hashem's name. These are vessels that were created, that were physical creations, and 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 he wasn't, uh, you know, and he was removed from this world. So Kalva Homer, certainly somebody that goes and delves into the shameless accusation that is not worthy or shouldn't be doing it, the end is not going to be good. And um, Rabbi Yaakov Hillel brings down a story with uh, Rabbi Yehuda, the students of Rabbi Yehuda Hasid. 
the students of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid, they went and they wanted to test the process. They they learned the names of Agadish Baruch they wanted to utilize it. So they went into a den of wild animals and they utilized this name and they were able to leave unharmed. When Rabbi Yehuda Chassid heard about this, what his student said, he says, what do you do? He says, you can't do that. He says, you know what, what problems you're going to bring? He says, you have to rectify it. And part of the rectifi- part of the rectification that they needed to do is they have to go back. They couldn't use the name or whatever. They're not going to get into all the details. But their end was is that they didn't, they, they were removed from this, uh, from this world. And this also, there's there's miracles that happened with uh, the Shabtai Tzvi, one of the false messiahs, which we're soon going to speak about a little bit in more detail. He, how did he create do all these miracles? He was also utilizing. People say that he utilized these names to perform, uh, you know, certain uh, certain miracles. And we'll soon we'll soon go into more detail on that. Uh, Rabbi Eliezer Papo even goes further and says you shouldn't even learn the secrets of these holy names because you could be tempted to be able to uh to 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 use it even though nowadays it's very very difficult to be even to get access to even try to learn it because number one a lot of the of the earlier sages stopped teaching this because it was too dangerous and uh some of the the farm that we have there were errors that were deliberately placed inside so people would not be able to go and utilize uh you know these uh these names so now going, let's delve a little bit into what practical, uh, Kabbalah and how it, um, and how it works. The, there, what we'll be learning, Bezat Hashem, is that there's something that there's, there's seven heavens. Uh, these seven heavens are in the world of Asiyah. That's the final world. That's where these heaven, seven heavens are. Each seven heavens have a corresponding side of evil, right? Because remember that we said that Akadish Baruch created, for, in order to have free will, you have to have equal the power of purity and the power of impurity. So these seven heavens have also corresponding seven aspects of the side of, uh, you know, of evil. After someone purifies themselves with the paraduma, the, the ashes of the red heifer, uh, which is no longer accessible, this was already lost during the time of Amorah, and this is the time of the Gemara. Uh, you're talking about over 1500 years ago. This was already already lost. So the the uh, the ax the access of what the Kabbalist had was no longer, they weren't able to access anywhere else other, uh, other the world of Asiya. Meaning beforehand, they were able to access the higher world. But once the time of the Gemara, where the, the, the ashes of the red heifer was lost, they were no longer being able to access any world above Asiya. So this is where the Kabbalistic were restricted to dealing in this, uh, in this, uh, in this world. Now, Remember, we said that there are four worlds, right? There's Atzil, there's Atzilut, Briah, Yitzira, and Asiya. The highest world, Atzilut. And by the way, I know I'm going fast because there's a lot to cover. And again, just whatever you get, you get, and whatever you don't, you'll you'll soon. As we continue the series, you'll it will soon start making sense to you. So the world, uh, the the love, the world, uh, the highest world of Atzilut, that's all good. The world of Briah, that's mostly good. The world of Yetzirah is like half good. And finally, the, the lowest world of Asiya is mostly bad, mostly evil, with a little bit of good mixed with evil. So what happens when a person uses practical Kabbalah, which operates in the world of Asiya, which is a lot of, there's a lot of evil in there in order to give that, that free will. So what happens is, is that they get connected. So any, any perception that they have, that they think that they get this, this high level is really a mixture of both truth and falsehood. And this is why they'll be left in a, in a state of confusion, a state of impurity. And this is why the, the, the Sefer Hasidim brings down and says that people that bind themselves to angels or to shade them to demons, these uh, th- these will not have any good at the end. The end, you, these end of, ending of these people, well, either they will convert to a different religion, they will be impoverished, they will die, and if not them, then their children uh, is, is going to fall onto this onto this fate. And uh, Rabbi Yaakov Hillel brings down two two uh, cases where this happened, where you have uh, one case number one is Yosef. Delarina, which uh, and and Shlomo Malko. So Joseph Delarina in the 15th century, he was a he practiced practical Kabbalah. He lived in Eretz Israel, and he decided that he through through different powers he's going to bring Mashiach. He's going to bring the final redemption. And not only did he fail in doing what he did, he injured himself spiritually and and physically. 
So there's different accounts of what happened to him, uh, but it was either he be, he you know became apostate, he you know left the religion, he went mad, or he committed suicide. Meaning his ending, whichever scenario you're taking it, was not uh, was not good. Shlomo Malcho, uh, uh he was a Portuguese Murano. A Murano was somebody that uh, during the time of the Spanish Inquisition, you either had to convert to uh, um, to Christianity or you had to be punished by death. So you had a lot of Jews that they pretended to convert to Christianity. But they really practice Judaism in Sukkot. These are known as the Moranos. So there was Shlomo, this Shlomo Machal. He was a Portuguese Morano. And he felt that the powers that he delved in the practical Kabbalah gave him a tremendous amount of power. In the year 1532, he went to seek audience with the king of Spain. And uh, he thought he would be able to get out. But what happened was, is his ending was that he ended up being burnt at the at the stake at the age of 31. And the, and the Sefer Hasidim brings down a, a bunch of, of warnings, uh, you know, against using, using practical Kabbalah. He said, anybody that prophesizes about the about the Mashiach in any which way is sure that if they're if they are actually not making it up and they're gathering it from something it's coming from a place of sorcery and it's involved with demons and they're invoking Hashem's Hashem's name and what's going to be the ending for them is they're going to bring shame to themselves and to their followers the Sefer Hasidim also says that you never want to start up with demons demons is also a source of a power that you that people are able to go and utilize a power of shade them to go and do certain things for them and, and perform certain miracles. But what happens is if you start up with the demons, they are that that's when they start uh, you know going after you. Meaning that they the demons start up only with someone who starts up with them. So people write certain amulets, they bind angels, you know, they do all these different things and uh, asking questions and dreams and different things like that. You're dealing with demons and you have to stay very far away because they are going to go. If you start up with them, they are going to start up with you and you do not want to start up with them. Sefer Hasidim also goes on and says you don't even use practical Kabbalah to save a life. Why? Because if you use practical Kabbalah to save a life, it shortens the life of the user. So who said, and, and their descendants. So who said that one life doesn't have priority over the other and hence you shouldn't go and shouldn't use even practical Kabbalah even to save someone's, uh, someone's life. So how come we see that there are times in history where people did use practical Kabbalah? They were able to do it and we see miracles. I'm not going to give examples now, but the people, I'm sure uh, you, you've heard of plenty of different examples. We have big rabbis that use Kabbalistic things to do certain miracles. So, there's criteria that if somebody came and was informed by Eliyahu Hanavi or was shown clear signs by God that they should be, that they're allowed to use it that, and their soul is, is on the level, then they're able to go and utilize practical Kabbalah. And that's why you see stories of where the Tanaim or the Amarayim or even the, the Chachamim of later generations who use practical Kabbalah had these types of revelations and they basically what that means is that they got permission. In order to utilize and delve into these different types of practical Kabbalah, you have to get permission from, uh, you know, from, uh, from heaven. Um, and, the Arizal, during the time of the Arizal, which is you're talking about 500 years ago, he forbade to use practical Kabbalah. And not only that, he didn't even teach practical Kabbalah. Um, Rab Chaim Vital ended up learning practical Kabbalah, but he, he studied it and on his own. And there's an interesting story with the Chida. The Chida was traveling, and he came across a unpublished work of Rab Chaim Vital. Which Reb Chaim Vital wrote at the end of his uh, end of his life, and Reb Chaim Vital in there describes uh, the subject was practical Kabbalah and Shemus Hakadoshim, the divine names, and the Chidah writes that he you know I started delving into it and I began to understand it, and I became very excited, and then suddenly I got very tired and I fell asleep. And in my dream, I saw Reb Chaim Vital, and I asked him questions about the manuscript. And he answered me, and then he gave me a cup to drink, says, says the, is the Chida, and I woke up. And I woke up feeling very, very happy. However, after that, the Chida thought, wait, maybe I'm not worthy of studying this manuscript. And he returned it to its owner, and he didn't delve in this anymore. Now, if you have a Mekubal, a Tzadik, a Godel Adar like the Chida, who says, okay, wait a minute, maybe I'm not on the level to study Kab- practical Kabbalah, so so to us, in our low level, we do not even begin to reach the, the, the toe of uh, the level of Reb Chaim Ital. So we, of course, we have to stay very, very far away from these types of uh, um, uh, works. 
And furthermore, Rabbi Yaakov Vilal says that if you do come across a safer of practical Kabbalah, chances are it's either counterfeit, or it's fake, or it's filled with mistakes. Because even many, many, many Sfarim that are, are actually, they are legitimate practical Kabbalah. An example would be Sefer Raziel HaMalach, that's, that's, that's practical, practical Kabbalah. The Rabbanim, they deliberately move things around so that, that you wouldn't be able to utilize it. Because no one's on the level to do it. So even if you had that, you still don't have the full uh, uh, the full level of the what it actually um, what it actually means and what it actually uh, uh, how to actually do it. The um, there was a rav by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Sapir, and he was uh, traveling and he came across a person who was known to do like magical things. He was known to use names and mystical oaths and he began to study under this under this person. This uh he was known as a miracle man. And one day he goes into this mystical man's uh, room to see, you know, his manuscripts and he starts looking into one of the sfarim, the secret books, let's call it, and he sees over there a mystical oath in the name of the holy angel Yeshu son of Miriam. Yeshu son of Miriam is JC. And Rabbi Yaakov goes over to this person and he says, you know what you have in your, he didn't even know, like he didn't even know what, what, what the origin was. And Rabbi Yaakov pressured him and he says, where did you get this from? And he, you know, admitted that he got it from this Arab, uh, you know, he got it off this Arab manuscript that he, that he pulled it off. And when, when the rabbi heard this, he said, you better, you know, he gave him instructions on how to do tshuva, get rid of this, and he did tshuva himself, and he went uh, very far away. Meaning that even if you have nowadays people that claim the ability, chances are that it's very possible that it's coming from a place of impurity. And I had a, a story where there was, um, uh, when I was giving a class in, in uh, Brooklyn on uh, um, on Avenue, uh, Avenue S and East 8th, there was a, um, a woman that came to me, you know, after a class, and she brought me this very, very thick leather, leather-bound book. And she says, can you help me, you know, with something? She's, she had a lot of, you know, there was different issues. She was a very wealthy woman, had a lot of issues. And she explained to me, she went to a certain Kabbalist. And the Kabbalist said for X amount of money, a large, large sum of money, if you give me this large sum of money, I'm going to give you this very, very powerful book. And it's going to go and it's going to protect you. So she said, fine, she wrote him a check for it, and he gave her this, uh, this book. And she says, you know, like, still things were, you know, like, uh, things were happening that were just, didn't, it was, it didn't fix anything. She says, I want to know what's written in this book. So she gives me this book, and I asked her a bunch of questions about this capitalist, and already I saw something fishy that was going on. And I started opening up this safer, and it was like Hebrew letters, but it wasn't Aramaic. It wasn't Lashon HaKodesh. It wasn't Hebrew even. It was, I couldn't understand it. So I told her, I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand what this says. Let me take a, a few pictures of some pages and let me send it out. So I took a few pictures of it and I sent it out to, um, to somebody that I know in Brooklyn who he himself, oh, the big Tamachacham himself said, I'm not sure. Let me send it out to somebody in Eretz Israel. He sent it out to someone in Eretz Israel and I got a response a short while later. Where did you get this? And, and, and who said, who, like, how did you have access to this? And, uh, uh, one thing led to another. When, once we delve into it, the things that I, the, the pages that I sent the picture of was, has nothing to do with Judaism. What turns out, it was from a, uh, in Israel, there are, there are Bedouins. Bedouins, there was a Christian Bedouin sect that has asked, uh, you know, they have, uh, um, they have access to certain, Let's call it dark side powers. And, uh, this safer that this capitalist gave, this is what it stemmed from. It came from a side of impurity. It came from a side of, of not only Christianity, but also the black, the dark magic and different, different things like that. And this is what he was giving her. And this is what he charged her a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, money for. So I told her obviously to get rid of it. I don't know what she ended up, uh, you know, doing with it, but this is where you see where you have people that delve into certain things and it comes from a place of impurity. So while we will be speaking about a lot of Kabbalistic concepts, it is important to take into consideration of our generation and our abilities and what we we should and what we shouldn't uh, delve into. That being said, I'm not saying that anything that the Kabbalistic says you can't learn. You can learn everything from A to Z, cover to cover. But this is something that you have to understand on Kabbalistic concepts and especially when we're delving into Kabbalah, how to be careful from different people, different uh, um, fraudulent activities that happen in uh, in in the in the world, unfortunately, especially in the Kabbalistic world. 
So before we get to even, this is, this is an introduction to the introduction of the Kavayashar, but now we have to give the introduction to the Kavayashar, which is the time period of when this, uh, when the Sefer came to print and when this, when the author of the Sefer was alive. And in order to go back, back to that, uh, the Sefer was printed, we'll soon see in the early 1700s, but in the mid 1600s, the capitalist actually, you know, predicted that the year 1648 is going to be a very special year. And the Jews look forward to this year, 1648. And we know, according to the tradition, according to the the, uh, the time before Mashiach comes, is something that is called Chevle Mashiach. Chevle Mashiach is like the birth pangs of Mashiach, which means is that before Mashiach comes, there's supposed to be a time of difficulty, just like the birth of a child. There comes with difficulty, and eventually there's a birth of a child, and there's the, the blessing that comes with it. But until that comes through the birth pangs, and that's through the difficulty that comes through through the uh, the birth pranks of uh, you know of Mashiach, and unfortunately the 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 birth pangs was very very strong in that you know in that year. So the year of 1648 and 1649 is known in Jewish tradition as Tach Vetat, uh, corresponding to the Jewish years of 408 409. Uh, this uh, um, just to give a little bit of a bra- background of what was going on. So uh, by the 1600, the Jews acclimated into the uh, part of the world which was Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine. And uh, for for a nice amount of period, talking about a little bit over 200 years, there was economic stability for the Jewish people. Uh, they had protection from their landlords. The the Jews, the jobs were that they collected taxes. Um, they kind of did the dirty works of the landlords. So uh, the way that it um, the way that it worked is that the Jews that lived, especially in Ukraine, um, the a lot of land was not owned by people living in Ukraine, but rather it was loaned, it was owned by, by Polish landlords. And the Jewish people were kind of the middleman to collect the, you know, the, the rent and, and basically enforce anything that the landlords wanted to be, to, to enforce. Now the problem was is that these landlords really, you're talking about slum lords, it takes it onto a whole nother level. They pushed these people to the brink and further. They, these, these people that lived in these lands, they were peasants. They didn't have any money. They barely could make rent. They were completely in debt and they were going worse and worse in debt to their landlords. Um, and, uh, who are, who was the heat going to go against? It was the middleman, right? That's who you, 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 it says don't don't blame the messenger, but that's the first person who gets the blame. And the Jewish people were the middlemen. They were the ones. This is the only jobs that they were able to take, uh, able to get. And they were these uh, middlemen. So the peasants from from the downside, they were blaming the Jewish people. And then what's even was even worse was the Catholic Church. During that time, the Catholic Church was every every year especially during march and april during easter the the church would preach on how bad the jews were and they blamed the jews for the crucifixion of jc and they pre- they, they kept on preaching the guilt of the jews and the vengeance you know like v- religious vengeance is the worst type of uh, of vengeance and you know nowadays we have that from the muslims uh, not too long ago it was from the christian sorry from the catholic church they went and they preached and they said even though it was from the romans that the fall that 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 actually killed uh jc but they still they blamed the jews so the jews were getting blamed from the from the religious side the jews are being blamed from the peasant side eventually in the about the year 1637 there was an uprising on in in ukraine now the who took the big blunt of the of this hit was the Jewish people. The Jewish people got, and when they when I say they got a hit, it doesn't mean that people spit on them and and you know you know spray painted swastikas on their houses. That means that they murdered them and worse. And uh, in the in this area of Ukraine, there were also Cossacks, which were um, these were were very powerful uh, you know warriors that uh, or like fighters that also created a rebellion in Ukraine. As as well, and during this period of the next few years, a lot of Jewish people uh, were were killed. However, by the year nineteen, uh, sorry, sixteen forty, the landlords, you know, kind of reasserted their power and they got back into the power until the famous year of sixteen forty eight. And sixteen forty eight, the peasants and the Cossacks they found a leader, uh, which was named was uh, Bogdan Kamaletsky. And this one, this is where the you know he was not only a soldier, he was a warrior, he was very. Charismatic, 
and he had a strong hatred for the Polish uh, landlords, and uh, he started leading an army, and he revolted. And he started capturing a lot of Polish castles, um, and every success that he had fueled more of the peasants, more of the of the people to go, more of the Cossacks to go and join his uh, join him. In 1648, for a period of about five months, there was a, a revolution, and he crossed into Poland, and he took over the city of Lvov, and you know until the the pole the poles eventually called a truce. But during this period of five months, you had thousands and thousands of of peasants that were walking around they were fighting they were armed they had no discipline they tasted blood and this turned into a rage of of, of just like psychotic killers and uh, uh you had the, you know from the christian side and you have from the peasant side they were coming in and the situation the people that suffered the most were the jews and between 1648 to 1653 they say somewhere between 100 to 300,000 jews were killed uh you're talking about a very very large percent of the jewish population this is uh, a very, very, uh, uh, you know, like downtime in Jewish history. Uh, even though you could say, okay, wait, we had more in the Holocaust. It was a very big difference from the, from the massacre of Tachvatata of the, of, of 1648 and 1649 than the Holocaust. And the difference was, is that there was no such thing as mass, uh, killing. There was no machines. There was no gas chambers during this time. There were no guns. There was no weapons of mass destruction. Everybody that died, died by hand that's what they died by 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 the hand of their enemy um and the, the stories that come out of it there was there's a, a book and translated into english uh that was written about this said that even being it, it was so bad that being killed was was uh you know considered a a blessing so during this period of time the jewish people went through a very 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 dark period in jewish history um for and this and this really really shook what happens when a Jewish, when the Jewish nation goes through a dark period of time? They looked, they look for, for a sense of, of redemption. They look for a sense of, of hope, a ray of light. And every eye turns, wait, we went through so much. Like, it's gotta be Mashiach is coming. It gotta be that Mashiach is coming right now. And this is why historians looked. There were many, many people throughout history that went and claimed to be Mashiach. Very few were successful. None were as successful as the fames or the infamous Shabtai Tzvi. Why was he so famous? Because he came right after this time. Right after this time of destruction, that's where he came. So a little bit of the background on Shabtai Tzvi. He came in from a, a very wealthy family. He was born on Shabbos, and that's why he was named Shabtai from, for, for, for the origin of, of, you know, of Shabbos. And he, when he, he left, he was a very, very smart, very charismatic kid. By the age of 15, he left yeshiva because he felt no one could teach him anymore. By the age of 18, he was already ordained as a rabbi. And uh, he was, uh, he lived a life like more of a loner. He learned by himself. By the age of 12, you know, like he studied Kabbalah at a very young age. He studied Kabbalah independently, um, uh, without any, without any teachers, without any rabbi. And uh, for his earlier years, he left a, you know, what history says, a quite normal, uh, normal life. However, at, um, you know, during the, the period of close to 1648, he started showing a uh, character of uh, a, a condition called bipolar, meaning he had uh, depression, manic and depressive episodes. And uh, he wouldn't, uh, you know, depressive, he would be, you know, by himself for, for a long period of time. And manic, he would not sleep for days, and he would be able to speak very eloquently. And uh, by the age of 22, which was when it was 1916, it was, which was 1648, he declared to his followers that he is the Mashiach. Nathan of Gaza, whatever, we're not going to go into all the detail. We have anybody who wants to look more into this, uh, into this person. Uh, we do have a class on Shabtai Tzvi. You could search on Torah anytime. Um, uh, there is a class, you know, all, uh, you know, going into, into depths on his history. And this Shabtai Tzvi, this fake Messiah, he started doing very odd things, you know, like with Kashras and Yichud, and he celebrated all the three festivals of, of Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuos all in within one week. He did very odd things. And the rabbi, started banishing him. He's like, something is something is off over here. And they started banishing him from the city. In the year 1666, he was imprisoned. 
and um, the his follower. He grew a very very strong following, and his followers saw it as a positive uh, a positive sign, and um, the, to the point that people were ready to sell their homes because they 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 thought like that's it we're going to Eretz Yisrael Mashiach is here. We it, it was real. It was real during those times. For a majority of people. And they even offered, they were able to give a large bribe to the guards over there and get him out to the government. And uh, Shabtai says, no, he refused to take the bribe, which just, you know, it, it brought his reputation to a whole nother level. And uh, during this period, he had like a normal, he was in a normal state and then he was in, you know, the manic depressive states. When he was in a normal state, uh, you know, he had rabbis come visiting him. And he wasn't in his manic depressive. And he was, he, what was he speaking? He was speaking about tshuva. He was, he claimed he had no special privileges. He was in his normal, his normal state. So you had over here a very interesting dynamic. And we had some rabbis were like, you know, like he is, it seems like he's legitimate. Like he has a tremendous, he was a genius. He had tremendous understanding of Kabbalah, of halacha. He had different understanding. Like he, he was very smart, very charismatic. And when he acted normal, he really looked normal. And when he acted not normal. So you had rabbis that saw him when he was normal. Rabbis saw him when is not normal. And people were on different, uh, uh, you know, different uh, paths uh, regarding what to do with him. So the time, the breaking point came is when, you know, it came to the sultan that uh, that this person says that he's the Mashiach and he's going to take the Jews out. Basically, he saw it as a threat. So the sultan calls him up and he says he was in prison. He says he calls him up and he says, you're the Messiah? And he says, no, uh, I'm, not the, I'm not the Messiah. So the sultan, you know, knew what was going on, all the, the rumors that were going around. So he says, listen, I'm going to give you a choice. Either I'm going to kill you or you're going to convert to Islam. So he decided that he's going to convert to Islam. And he con- he accepted Islam. He took the name of Muhammad Effendi. And he became, you know, Islam to whatever extent, uh, you know, that, that happened at this point in time. Uh, you know, all the rabbis realized that this guy is is far from uh, legitimate. However, he grew a very, very strong following. And the following was, well, like, okay, you know why he's... And they started giving excuses for different things that he was doing. All the, the, the wicked things that he was doing, they started giving, you know, excuses. And we see that, all, unfortunately, we see that even nowadays, you have wicked people that have a following and they do wrong things, things that are completely against the Torah. And you have their followers are so devoted. They say, no, it's they're, 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 they're raising the Nitzitzis. They're raising the sparks of Kedusha. He's going to Islam that his followers said so that he could raise it and bring it to the level of purity. And this is all part of the plane of the Mashiach. And they kept on, they, they kept on, uh, you know, delving into giving it, giving him excuses. So you have over here. This is the time period where you have of of when the Kava Yasha came into came into uh, when when it was written and when it was published. It was a time period where it was a a destruction in the physical world because of Tachvatat, the destruction of sixteen forty eight, and then you have the destruction of the spiritual world. Imagine how uh, how difficult it was. Where after the Jewish people they went through such a difficult time physically, and finally they hear the great news: the Mashiach is here, and these perform miracles and things are happening things are doing it's like movement and then only to find out that it was all fake it was all fraudulent it had no basis of any legitimacy everything was it was a very very difficult time for the jewish people uh um during this time period in jewish history and that is the time when the kava yasha came into uh um into being so the kava yasha was was authored by uh, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Kadinover. And um, uh, this is one of the most popular Musser books in the last uh, 300 years. The first publishing was done in 1705. And there was trem- so many different, uh, you know, additions, uh, you know, that came, that, that came out. People were thirst, not only was people were thirsting for it back, you know, back then, they were drinking this up, but also nowadays when people hear about it and they start learning about it, it there's so, there, it's, it's such a different cipher that it connects to the neshama. Different, different, I mean, of course, there's many different farms that connect to it, but this is on, on a level that, that touches that not too many farms touch upon, especially more modern, uh, modern farms the past, you know, 300 years. So a little bit of a background on the author. Um, so Rav Tzvi Hirsch, he was born in Vilna. And until the year 1655, 
they were living in his father's house and the house was pillaged and his two sisters were killed. So his family escaped to Austria and they ended up settling in Nikolasburg. His father, a very, very famous, a Gadoldar, big rabbi by the name of Rabbi Aaron Shmuel, he was appointed, uh, the rabbi of that, of the town of Nikolasburg. And the, the, the author of the Kaviyashar, Abzi Hirsch, he received his Torah education from his father and from Rabbi Yosef, uh, Rabbi Yosef ben Yehuda, who was a rabbi of, of Minsk. His father, Rabbi Aaron Shmuel Kadinover, he was, um, he wrote a very, very famous, uh, he actually didn't write it, his son actually came, it was, the, the author of the Kaviyashar actually printed it, uh, but he wrote a very, very famous, um, uh, 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 Shot a drush uh, explanation on on the rush and it's called Tvers Shmuel and this is printed in the Vilna Shas and this was published by his son Rav Tzvi, Rav Tzvi Hirsch. The, one of the reasons that he published it is when um, when when the author of the Kaviyasha Rav Tzvi Hirsch when he returned to Vilna he was very successful in business and then for like reason for like false reasons him and his entire family was in prison on false charges. And when he was released, he went back to Frankfurt and he saw this as a punishment that he didn't publish his father's farm. So he started publishing his father's farm. Um, and that's when he started publishing Tferes Shmuel on the rush, uh, the, com- the commentary on the rush. Though I don't know why I couldn't figure out that word beforehand. That was the word I was looking for, the commentary on the rush. And uh, part of his goal was obviously, you know, because this was his father's work, but also he wanted to raise money because his son was still in prison uh, and he wanted to use the money to, to, to get him out. The author of Tzvi Hirsch speaks about others' farm in the Kavayashar. However, all these farm on the parasha, if only we would have this, it would be amazing. But unfortunately, um, uh, we don't have any copies today. Uh, we, we, you know, hopefully one day, hopefully we'll be able to find it. But right now, uh, there is no other copies of other, uh, of other works that he speaks about in the Kavayashar. The, uh, Rav Tzvi Hirsch, the author of the Kaviyasha, he was Nifter, he passed away on the 15th of Adar, which is actually coming up, in the year of 1712, and he is buried in, uh, Frankfurt. Now, the Kaviyasha, the power of this safer, you, you could see by, you could tell by the, how, how the Gedolim, uh, you know, speak about this safer. So Rabbi Yosef Te'oimim, the author of the Prima Gadim, he lived in the same generation as the Kavayashar. He, he speaks about it, he says it's a safer that is healing to the soul and all its words are said with intellect and musar. And he goes on and he says anybody who purchased the Sefer will rejoice. This is meant for Torah scholars and for plain people. Even though it's a lot of Kabbalistic concepts, but it's also meant for plain, uh, you know, people uh, that, are, that are not Torah scholars as well. Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, which is uh, known as the Chida. He was born 17, uh, he was born in the year 1714, uh, um, and, uh, so he was born after the, the, uh, author of the Kaviyasha passed away, and he quotes very, very frequently the Kaviyasha in his farm. And he, and he writes that a safer that would lead to the fear of heaven. Uh, another famous, uh, Rav, a famous author also, Rabbi Yaakov Kuli, he was the author of the, of the Ma'am Laws. So the Ma'am Laws was a very, very famous, uh, you know, uh, series, um, that, that was started to be written by Rabbi Yaakov Kuli. Uh, later in, uh, you know, in the previous, uh, recently, it was, uh, translated by Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Uh, but this, the, this is, he was a contemporary of Rabbi Kadinov, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch. He lived in Svas and he quoted, not only he quoted the Kaviyasha, some Sometimes he even quoted like entire chapters word for word into the into into his into his own farm. Uh, Rab Chaim Falaji, which which authored the Kafachayim, speaks extensively about uh, the Kavayashar. And listen to this: this is the part that will take the take your you know take t- take it to the bank, take it to the to the fi- to the finish line. The Kajans or Magad says that if you learn uh, the Zayar, you'll get a certain amount. But if you study the Zayar through the Kavayashar, you have, you'll, it will have a more profound effect to you than the studying the Zohar directly. And the Gun of Stravitsa goes and explains what, what does that mean that you'll, you know, like, you'll be able to understand it more if you learn the Zohar through the Kavayashar as opposed to if you learn the Zohar, you know, di- you know, directly from the, from the Zohar. And, uh, he explains that, you know, wherever your source of your Nushama is, your soul is, it's rooted in a certain place. 
the Zohar is in a very, very high place. In order to understand it, your soul has to be very, very connected in a very high life. The author of the Kava Yashar, he put his, a, a certain power in his Sefer. The power of holiness that he has in his Sefer is, is the root of his soul. So you're, it's much easier to connect to his root and which connects to the Zohar as if they're connecting directly to the Zohar itself. Meaning that you'll be able to understand the Zohar. You'll be able, you'll be able to understand Kabbalistic concepts much clearer by learning it through the Kava you know, through the Kavayasha. The Hassam Sofer went and he instructed his daughters to read the, the Kavayasha as well. Rabbi Elimelech Milizhinsk and Rabbi Shalom Rokach, the Sarsham, the first Belzer each of them, they learned the Kavayasha 102 times. There's 102 Prakim. We'll soon see. We're not going to get to it today because it's getting a little bit late. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, but, uh, there's a hundred, there's a reason why there was 102 Prakim. They each learned it 102 times. They knew it, they knew it by heart. Uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, he told his followers that you got to go and if you want to you have to learn the Kavayashar to get a year of to get fear uh, you know fear of uh, of heaven meaning that we see the power of the Kavayashar we see on how high of a level the Kavayashar you know you know was for all these Gedalim just tells you how important this uh, you know this Sefer is uh, there's a little bit I, I wanted to speak about the introduction to the Kava Yashar, which we didn't have a chance. It's getting, uh, you know, really late. Uh, so we didn't have a chance to even speak about the introduction to the Kava Yashar. So Bezad Hashem, next, uh, next time we will speak about the introduction and hopefully we'll be able to get started on the first, um, you know, the first, the first parak. But the point of tonight is to give to give everyone a little bit of understanding of Kabbalah, to give a little bit of, of, of a warning of, of, of Kabbalah, and to give a little bit of an idea of what's going on and how the Sefer came into being and the power of this Sefer. And I can guarantee whoever doesn't have it, go out now and buy it. Unfortunately, the English one, as of this class of when it's giving, I tried to search it for it today. It's out of stock. I spoke to, I have a friend of mine that owns a farm store. He said it's also out of stock. He does, you know, like as of, as of now, it's, it's, it's out of print. I don't know. We have to wait for it, for it to come back. But I strongly recommend every single person to go and get the safer, learn it. It will change your life. And now that it's so enjoyable. Oh, uh, the, the, the beauty of it. You'll just keep on wanting to do one. Um, one you'll keep on just, you, you wouldn't be able to put it down. You really wouldn't be able to put it down. Okay. With that being said, uh, we will open up. Oh, wait, before we open up to any questions, let's do as we usually do. Uh, say a capital to Hillim for uh, this, our soldiers in Eretz Yisrael, as well as for the for for Kali Israel at whole during this uh, difficult uh, time. As usual, we will say chapter Koflamid, which is chapter 130. Even if you're hearing this recording, you're up to this part of the year. Say it along uh, with me. Don't wait for for me to pause. Just say every word uh, with me as I go through it fairly uh, quickly. Shir Hamalois Mimamakim Karasi Chadinoi. Achinu kolbeis Israel hanesunim batzara uvashevya haaimdim bein bayam uvein bayabasha hamakam yirachem aliem viyetziem mitzara lirvacha umafela leayra umeshibud legula hashta bagala bezman kariv veneimar amen. Okay, we'll open up to any uh, questions. Okay, I hope the quality on Zoom came better. I switched to different. Uh, um, I, uh, you know, bandwidth. Okay, good. Actually, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Okay. Uh, where are we over here? Okay, not too many, uh, not too many, uh, questions. Okay, we have over here a question on, was it Esther Malka or Mordechai? Who sent the shade to Ahasuerus? Okay, uh, so so just a little bit of background to that um, uh, to that question. So uh, Esther Hamalka, she was never up to a certain point in time in the story of Purim. She was actually never intimate with uh, Ahasuerus. She it was Esther who sent, from my knowledge, Esther who sent a a, a shade who who looked like her uh to be with Ahasuerush and that's why she said when she is going uh to go to Ahasuerush to beg for the Jewish people she's going by herself on 
meaning <coughs> that she's not sending any 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 demon uh, in her in her stead, and that's what she says. She's gonna she she has the potential to lose her share in this world, and that's what she, the 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 Megillah says. Kasha avadati avadati, and if I lose, I lose. Meaning, I lose this. I can lose this world, and I can lose uh, the next world because I'm going willingly at this point in time. Okay, the safer is available in English. I just. It's just, uh, you, you're not, it's unfortunately now it's out of print, uh, but there is, it's a two volume, uh, um, in, it, it is available in English. So there's a two volume going, you know, the, out there in English. Uh, hopefully it will be in print, uh, soon and then you can, um, uh, okay, Bleen Adder, when I, when it's available, I'll try to keep in mind, I'll post it on the, on the chat. I'll try to keep, uh, keep it, uh, um, in the back of my mind and let you guys know when it's available. Okay. Thank you all for uh, joining. Until uh, next time, may have all a wonderful and a successful week. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.